Hey, so great to have you tune in to this episode of Green Dreamer. I wanted to let you know that I set up a Patreon goal that we're aiming to meet as soon as possible in order to keep the show going. So if you've listened to at least a few episodes, have learned from us, and wish to continue doing so, and if you're not struggling financially, of course, or a new listener just checking the show out, please become a patron today starting at $2 per month so we can keep Green Dreamer podcast alive and open and accessible for for everyone. To join us on Patreon, you can head to greendreamer.com slash support. And thank you so much to our current and past supporters. Why do we have 20 erectile dysfunction drugs and nothing new and efficient for malaria? It's because which one makes more money? You know, the people who suffer from malaria don't have the money that Americans have to pay in ca- case of cancer drugs almost a million dollars a year for treatment of, of cancer. Unfortunately, we've ceded that role of the university as a public health supporter to corporations who are mostly interested in making money. That's why our drugs cost so much. That's why people in the developing world can't get the drugs. But more to the point, that's why drugs for needed conditions are either not being developed at all or only being developed in situations where they can charge a lot of money. That was Harriet Washington, an award-winning medical writer and editor, and the author of A Terrible Thing to Waste and the best-selling book Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to the Present. In this part two of our conversation, we're going to go on to discuss what the medical industrial complex is and how it's really been crossing the lines in finding things to profit off of, how public health threats to people of color really should concern everybody in a society, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. So often when we're talking about things like obesity, diabetes, or even poor performance in school for children, we have a culture that tends to see these as their personal problems. So they need better education, they need to study harder, they need better impulse control, and on and on and on. And you call these blame the victim messages. Can you expand on this further to show how much of our health is really based on individual choice and accountability versus on the contextualized environmental injustice that maybe shows the often illusion of choice? Personal responsibility in health is really important, and we should be espousing that. The problem is when one focuses on personal responsibility in situations where an individual has no responsibility, has no power to change things that are happening. Environmental exposure is one of those. If we talk about someone who lives across the street and has done for decades from a you know diesel fuel spewing bus depot in Harlem, and then tell that person that, oh, well, you're sick, you're sick, you've got diabetes, you have kidney disease, you need to lose weight. This is not an uncommon scenario. Mm. Perhaps the person does need to lose weight. That has nothing to do with the fact that fumes have been triggering their kidney disease, have been triggering their asthma, 
have been exacerbating their hypertension and that things over which they have no control are ruining their health. So, you know, public health began in this country focusing on confronting industry, confronting government when necessary, about eliminating hazards of public health. And we've moved from that to focusing on personal responsibility. The problem is one needs both and one needs to pursue them appropriately. It's not appropriate to invoke personal responsibility from people who are trapped in environmental sacrifice zones. That's not appropriate. We should be confronting industry and our weakened EPA is not doing that, far from it. The Environmental Protection Agency today seems much more interested in supporting business, even business that is, that is crippling and killing people, than it is in trying to impose better regulations or making them live up to the regulations that already exist. The EPA is actually failing Americans at this point and not doing its job to protect them. And so invoking personal behavior is a slap in the face. There's also a very long history of them doing this successfully. Lead being probably the prime example. The LAIA, the Lead Industry Association, successfully turned the tables on and invoked the bad housekeeping, dirtiness, ignorance of African, I think they called them Black and Puerto Rican parents back then saying it's because they were such bad housekeepers that lead dust was everywhere and their kids were being poisoned. Of course, that's ridiculous. Lead dust was everywhere because the industry imported it. They militated for lead to be put into cars, and anti-knock, even though ethanol would have been a non-toxic and equally effective additive, they wanted to use lead. They militated for lead paint being used on children's toys. They militated for um, the government to use lead to line pipes that carry water, even though we <laughs> the ancient Romans even glimpsed toward the end that this was a toxic material they were having uh, ferry their water. So we've known that for a long time, and yet the government did not stop them. Industry was able to triumph, and they're still now today. Industries are successfully demonizing African Americans who complain about being poisoned. So... We, need, we really need to dramatically revise the way that we handle this. Mm. So on the podcast, we've previously talked about the military-industrial complex, which profits off of perpetuating violence and wars overseas. And we've also talked about the prison-industrial complex, which profits off of dehumanization and mass incarceration and often criminalizes poverty and people's reactions to desperation and struggle. For both of these systems, while not justified at all, violence, exploitation, and punishment seem to be embedded into their reasons of existence. But when we're talking about our healthcare industry, something that should exist to support people's health and be of service to our public well-being, a lot of people don't know that we also have a medical industrial complex. As you outline in your book, Deadly Monopolies, the profit motive has encroached in colonizing human life and compromising medical ethics, end quote. What exactly does this medical industrial complex consist of? And in what ways do you think they've been overstepping and finding ways to capitalistically extract value and profit? How long do you have? <laughs> <laughs> many, many ways. I'll just say that in Deadly Monopolies, I talked about the fact that in the 1980s, a series of laws catalyzed a very cozy relationship 
between American corporations and universities, as well as between universities and the military. Essentially, for the first time in a long time, it became legal for universities to take a patent, to take a discovery, a drug, a molecule, or medically important drug that had been invented or um, refined by an academic, and then assign it to a corporation for profit. So to sell the patent to a corporation, to license a drug or or a molecule to the corporation, so they became very cozy. Now, universities began making a lot of money selling the discoveries to corporations, and corporations began making a lot more money by selling them to the American public. What's, you know, it's very interesting because when corporations began doing this, it was promulgated as a way to encourage industry and to make better use of the patents and to make more drugs available. The problem is that now that corporations own these um, licenses and own, own these patents, they began charging what the traffic could bear, and the ability to make money from patent became eclipsing the motivation of universities to find drugs that people really needed. So instead now of looking for drugs for, that are desperately needed, like new and better antibiotics, new and better anti, antidepressants, uh, new and better drugs against malaria, now corporations are focused on making the most money with the least effort. Copycat drugs, drugs for very common trivial conditions like um, gastric distress and um, erectile dysfunction. Why do we have 20 erectile dysfunction drugs and nothing new and efficient for malaria? It's because which one makes more money? Mm. You know, the people who suffer from malaria don't have the money that Americans have to pay in ca- case of cancer drugs almost a million dollars a year for treatment of, of cancer. I mean, so Americans, some Americans can do that. Nobody in Africa do, can do that with a few exceptions. Nobody in Brazil or Thailand can do that. So unfortunately, we've ceded that role of the university as a public health supporter to corporations who are mostly interested in making money. That's why our drugs cost so much. That's why people in the developing world can't get the drugs. But more to the point, that's why drugs for needed conditions are either not being developed at all or only being developed in situations where they can charge a lot of money. So um, this is a very ugly situation that we found ourselves in now. And what makes it worse is that the patents we give to drug makers are different from patents in the European Union and elsewhere. Many countries have patents that are tailored to the use of the drug. A patent might be given for five years, exclusivity, or the patent might be given for a short period of time as a test to see if it helps distribute the drug. But in our country, we give 14 years minimum, which most companies can expand to at least 20 years by various manipulations. So a company will have a drug that they will patent. They will profit from it exclusively for 20 years. Then they'll tweak an electron or modify it slightly and go with a totally different drug that they will also patent. So um, this has not been good for innovation. It has discouraged innovation. And we're at the point now where we're actually having fewer new drugs instead of more new drugs than we were before the laws were passed. So it's an ugly situation. It was done to state industries, you know, desire for money, but it's effectively taken control of development of new drugs from the university. And by the way, as a grace note, we're paying for these very expensive drugs twice. We pay for them when we pay our taxes 
that go to support university innovation, and then we pay for them again when they come on the market in a very overpriced form. So the military industrial complex, the prison industrial complex, the medical industrial complex, there's also the media industrial complex, which we've yet to dive into on the show, but we'll do that in a future episode. I'm wondering if you think there's a way in which these industrial complexes are connected at certain levels and feed into upholding one another today. They're all connected. They're connected by greed. I actually teach teach a course on journalism and bioethics at Columbia. And one of the really disappointing things I've seen with the news media is that around the time of the first Gulf War, I was really disappointed. I was working in a newsroom then. I was disappointed to see how quickly news organizations, including my own, went from being highly critical, highly skeptical, making analyses of government behavior and, and policies, to falling into line, becoming quote unquote embedded reporters, What does that mean? That means you see what the military wants you to see. You go where the military wants you to go. And so I I would think to myself more than once, this is an independent newspaper, or are we basically a mouthpiece for the military? Mm. So um, that's a problem. Same problem with industry. Very often industry is able to... You know, what's interesting is when it comes to the media, I think... I think that very often it's less economic and financial bias that allows um, industry to, you know, basically distort its role in the pages of, of, new, of newspapers and magazines and uh, digital media. I think it often has more to do with, how can I put this, curation of information. You know, journalists, not all, of course, you know, they, they they vary widely from publication to publication. But we have to remember, most newspapers are not the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or Washington Post. Most are papers in a mid to small city, sometimes small city, that do not have people on staff who are equipped to do their own independent analyses and often will fall into accepting what they've been told, simply because they can't analyze it differently. So the scientific analyses that they're given, they will accept and not always stop or be able to question whether they're hearing from a disinterested scientist or they're hearing from an industrial employee or someone in the the pay of industry. So um, it's very insidious, like a creature with many tentacles, but the effect is always the same. We end up with a view of reality that's been carefully curated through attention to profits and attention to presenting a certain image of industry and science that may not always be accurate. Mm. Well, as you've said before, threats to people of color and their cognition actually harm everybody in a society. So for racial justice, for environmental justice, for the betterment of our world, what do you see as our pathways going forward in addressing these disparities? And what are some of your calls to action for our listener? I think it's really important to realize that what you've just said is very true. But it's the way that it's true. I think people don't always understand. It's more than a noble sentiment. It's also a reality of health. We are all in this together because many health effects from pathogens to environmental exposures have a way of affecting us all. African-Americans, Native Americans, Hispanic Americans are canaries in the coal mine. 
what's happening to us today, what's happened to us yesterday, will happen to you tomorrow. There's something called the Robin Hood Index. And Deborah Prothostiff Nishiro at the Harvard School of Public Health, Nishiro Kawachi, they used this index to look at health. And what they found were that countries that had wide disparities, they harmed dramatically people of color, of course. They also harmed the middle class. So, you know, rich people are able to buy their way out of a lot of difficulties. The middle class cannot. So what happens is that we have these profound harms that today are ravaging the bodies and minds of African Americans and, and Native Americans, but tomorrow will ravage the mind body of a large group of Americans. So it is not only an ethical, noble sentiment, but it's also a physical reality that these uh, these horrible, horrible devastation is going to affect almost all of us eventually. So I think that's really important to realize. And I also think that in terms of what people can do, one of the things I found really powerful is if you go way back to around 1980s in Afton, North Carolina, there's a uh, city, mostly um, African-American, middle-class city, that had found itself the recipients of a crime. The government and the EPA decided to dump PCB poison oil into that community. And they thought they did it because we're black. We're the only largely black community in the area. They began protesting PCBs and the sheriffs came out and got on their bullhorns, began talking about law and order and began arresting them. But guess who else came out? Whites from the surrounding areas, many of them. And as a result, in my opinion, it's because of the whites who came out that the news coverage went on for six weeks. For six weeks, you saw daily newscasts of these people being brutalized by the police. And I'm convinced that, you know, the help of our white allies, allies needs to continue being public and sustained. I think that really helped us get through the civil rights movement successfully, and it's going to help us now. The cemetery What is an uplifting social media account or a publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Philip Grandjean, who I should have mentioned before now, is a scientist, expert in toxicology. He wrote a book called Only One Chance. He talks in great detail about the environmental assault of industrial chemicals on the cognition of Americans. He's not talking only about Americans of color, he's talking about Americans in general. And it's a very, not only packed with information, but it's a profoundly poetic book. I strongly recommend it. And I follow the accounts of Mustafa Ali and Kim Talbert, who are all, I always learn something. They're you know deeply illuminating in terms of not only environmental problems, people of color, but all the other challenges as well. So follow them. And we've had the honor of having Dr. Ali in a past episode, so I highly recommend our listener go back to check that out. Um, what do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? Well, 
sometimes the world looked quite bleak like it, like it does today, right? You ask yourself, what isn't going wrong? <laughs> From a pandemic to racial violence in the street, um, almost open warfare, um, environmental devastation. But I always remember that God works through serendipity. He works through other people. And the cliche that your mom told you, it's a cliche because it's true. You know, it often is darkest before dawn. I think what really always gives me help is the fact that when there are these horrible challenges, how we face them is what's key. You know, we always ask God to help us as we should, but I believe God helps those who help themselves. And so when we face them, the way we are now, I'm very happy with the way a lot of people are facing these challenges today. Yes, a lot of people are doing foolish things, but then we have a lot of people also who are in solidarity, uh, people who are deeply concerned about the lives of people, African-Americans being challenged on every front and are translating their concern into being publicly protesting it, making their voices heard, putting their bodies on the line. I think it's those things that predicate success. Things can look really, really bad, but if you see people reacting in solidarity in the right way, that gives me hope. And that's what I'm seeing today. What are you working on right now to improve your health? To stop sitting at a computer. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's become a real challenge for me. You know, it's hard to remember that I was once a person who used to run regularly and do all the things, but I really love my work. I really love writing. But like a lot of people, I am definitely like a lot of Americans, I have fallen into this really bad sedentary lifestyle. And um, it's a constant, it's a challenge for me. Mm. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? Right now, I'm writing a book about consent in medicine. It's something that I think not, well, I know not enough attention is being turned toward. And I have a fear that consent to medical research, to medical practices, is something that's slowly been taken away from us. And I'm a, I have this fear that we're going to wake up one day and find that we don't have it any longer and that people are not aware of it. It's being taken from us with no transparency, laws and rules that are being changed quietly without notifying the public. And I finally decided to stop worrying about it. I'm writing a book about it in hopes that people will see this danger and do something about it. Well, we're really looking forward to that. And finally, what makes you most hopeful for our world at the moment, if anything? <laughs> Other people, it's easy to fo focus, as I mentioned before, on what's going on. We can't, in fact, we can't avoid it. But um, I'm very heartened by, and frankly, also surprised, I'm very heartened by the fact that now when we have a black man murdered in broad daylight, completely horrible situation, but the response is not the response I've grown inured to over the decades, which is, Oh, well, he must have been doing something wrong. Oh, isn't that terrible? Turn the page. You know, mm. the response is people who are just refusing to accept it any longer. And I find that really heartening. That's going to make change. The fact that people are motivated to erose, erase injustice and cruelty that doesn't affect them directly. I find that a very incredibly refreshing view into the human spirit and incredibly heartening view when it comes to seeing justice done. 
Well, Green Dreamer, you can find Harriet's hugely important and profound books pretty much anywhere books are sold. But please, of course, support your local independent bookstores first if you can. And you can also follow her on Twitter at HAW95. Harriet, it's been an incredible honor to have you here on the podcast. Thank you so much for sharing your story and expertise with us. And we look forward to continue following your work and learning from you. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Um, wisdom, I don't know. But, <laughs> All wisdom um, doubt. <laughs> assuming there was any there to begin with. But yes, I would just say it's important not to give up. I think in, in times like this when things look really bleak, one can't hear that enough. It's really important if one if you're convinced that what you're doing is right, that the stance you're doing is important, uh, not to be dissuaded from it, not to be deflected from it, and most importantly, not to be lulled into settling for something that's insufficient to deal with the problem. Um, I think as I've aged, probably the thing that I'm most grateful for is that I feel like I have not sort of um, tempered or slowed down in that way, which some people would say it's the opposite of, of wisdom. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's no point in you know being a live or trying if you're not sometimes um, radical. And it's important to be radical alive. You were listening to Green Dreamer, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've learned from or have been inspired by this episode, I would love to have your direct support on Patreon at greendreamer.com support so that I can keep this independent show going and accessible for everyone. Patreon is where our guests' final five tips, personal mantras, and additional suggested readings will be shared from now on, alongside some bonus content and sometimes author book giveaways as well. So if you're able to join starting from $2 per month, again, it's greendreamer.com support. Today's song feature is Yarrow by Kim Anderson. And I also want to thank our audio engineer, Scott Donnell, and our post-production content manager, Elizabeth Joy. We appreciate you so much, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. The grass beneath